There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg and Colin. I feel like that's a radio voice there coming out, Greg. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Welcome back. Here we are again with Dr. Johnny Fever and Venus Flytrap. Remember that show? Oh, it was a great show. Good show. Today, we're going to get into some items about research and trading, which is a little different than what we've been talking about recently. Although, I guess kind of similar because what have we been talking about? We've been talking about the volatility of markets, sure, right? Mm-hmm. Headlines and sort of how those come into play when you're making investment decisions. But some of those decisions, Greg, I would say a vast majority of those decisions actually come down to a few basic principles around like sample size, focus groups, and the wisdom of crowds. Well, and, you know, so we're really talking about research. And I think the The reason for doing this is because some of the things we've talked about, things like stock picking and market timing, a lot of those are theoretically based on research that somebody has done. But research has to be done correctly. And it's the quality of the research, you know, and the the output of the research that actually will determine whether or not it's actionable or valuable in any way. Interesting you say that, because I know when I did grad school, you know, you're doing your final capstone project. And the goal of it was to find a research question that you could answer, right? But most people did it backwards. They had an answer and then looked for a research question, right? So in research today, in stock trading, that's exactly how a lot of people look at it, right? They look at it backwards. So, So let's talk about sample size for a minute because sample size is important, right? It's really important. Like we all have stories about friends, colleagues, someone around us who's made possibly a great trade, you know, could have been maybe during the GameStop fury or some one of those things, right? And you'll hear them retell that story over and over again, you know, trying to demonstrate their trading ability based on their research or whatever it is that led them to that trade. But Greg, we know, you and I both know, that on average, we are all average. No, totally average. Yeah, like we might change this show name to Average Joes or something, right? Because there's a bunch of research out there about things like how 80% of drivers believe that they're above average, which is obviously statistically impossible, right? So it's kind of the same thing when we talk about stock trading. Because for every winning trade, there is somebody who's losing, right? There's somebody on the other side of that trade. So so what they actually call that a zero-sum game. For every winner, there's a loser. And I would argue that the sample size for this example is just way too small, right? So if you have like one person telling you about one trade they did, that doesn't mean anything to me, right? Sample size can greatly impact the validity of research, and this can lead to what is called sampling error. Right on. So, yeah, and sampling error... Basically, it's a statistical error that happens when an analyst doesn't select a sample that represents the entire population of data. So when we talk about population, by the way, going forward here, we're talking about data, just a large, a large sample of information. 
you know, the results found in the sample don't represent the results that would be obtained from the entire population. So like reviewing the results of one gambler or a stock picker versus the results of the aggregate of all gamblers or the market as a whole. And, you know, another example would be specifically to do with investments would be looking at the behavior of markets during a a period of time that's too small. For example, 10 years. Now, for most investors, 10 years seems like a lifetime. But for investment research, 10 years is actually quite short. And drawing conclusions from a 10-year period of time and extrapolating that into the future could be very misleading. So here's an example we've talked about before. You know, the U.S. stock market returns from 2000 to 2010, negative 0.9% a year. The lost decade. The lost decade. And anybody drawing conclusions, well, I guess it's over for U.S. stocks, it's going the way of Japan or what have you, would have missed out on the the next 10-year period, 2010 to 2020, when stocks, U.S. stocks were up 13.5% annually. So dramatic difference from having a sample size that's too small. Well, let's talk about that for a minute in today's day, because the sample size right now isn't 10 years, it's like six months, right? People are talking about how, and we did an episode recently on the worst start to a calendar year in 50 years, but it's six months of data. That's right. And even with bonds, bonds now, I think over a 12-month period or a one-year period starting a year ago today, I think they've had their worst one-year period in history. But again, very small. If five years from now, if we look at the five-year returns on bonds, we might find it's extremely similar to the historical average. We just don't know. So sampling is an analysis. You know, we use sampling, you know, by selecting a number of observations from a larger group. And the problem is that the method of selection can produce both sampling errors and non-sampling errors. So sampling error is just a deviation of the, in the sampled value versus the true population value. Okay, and this, so the errors occur because the sample isn't representative of the population or is biased in some way. And even randomized samples will have some degree of sampling error because the sample itself is only an approximation of the population from which you drew it. So you have to find ways to eliminate sampling errors in research. And the prevalence of sampling errors can be reduced by increasing the sample size. So as the sample size gets increases, it gets closer to the actual total population, which therefore decreases the potential for deviations from that population. And just a, on a smaller basis, consider the average of a sample of 10 obviously is going to vary more than the average sample of 100. So when we take that to investment research, and we've talked about this once before as well, one of the biggest breakthroughs in, in having access to investment data was the development of the CRISP which is the Center for Research in Security Prices, which, you know, was based at the University of Chicago. And that provided information on all publicly traded companies in the U.S. dating back to the beginning of 1926. So the CRISP is just like an index. It's a database. But you can't invest directly in the CRISP. You don't invest in the CRISP, but many people will use CRISP data as an index or a benchmark to look at, you know, overall investment returns. So when you look at that kind of information, then the larger the sample size, obviously, the, the less error. And you might, you know, you might want to use uh, more than one subject or multiple groups or undertake multiple studies, you know, to get access to a larger population of information. Let's talk about that in our world. Well, yeah. And, and so, you know, one of the things that we looked at, and, and we've talked a lot about Fama and French and the three-factor model, which is now a five-factor model. But what happened is they identified trends in U.S. stock performance over a long period of time. 
And then in order to see if that trend is actually, if it's just a sampling error by just looking at U.S. stocks specifically and not other parts of the world, they ended up doing the same analysis in international stocks and using stocks from all around the world and emerging markets, international Canadian stocks. And they use that to validate their hypothesis, essentially coming out of the information from the U.S. research. So I think that just kind of highlights that, you know, it's easy to make sampling errors when you're doing research based on a limited amount of data. And one of the big mistakes is thinking that your data set is large enough. And in many cases, it it isn't. So in Calgary, this could be very simply somebody coming in. Well, somebody came in a few years ago, Greg, and they said to me, man, the market's down a lot. And when they said that, the broader stock markets around the world were actually having a positive result. So I didn't understand what they were talking about. I said, well, which market are you referring to? And they said, well, oil. Well, that would be a small sample set, right? Compared to the, the larger market, which is not just energy, right? It's all kinds of different sectors. That's right. And let's face it, most investment research is conducted to try to find the answer to the question, what stocks should I invest in in order to get the best return in the future? And these are these are massive questions. They're not small questions. And and in many cases, you know, people will try to come to an easy answer based on an inadequate sample size. And they'll they therefore will get an incorrect answer. I think you could take it really right down to the portfolio level. So, you know, there's a lot of people out there that say you're diversified if you have, I don't know, 25 stocks in your portfolio. Right. Jim Cramer says you're diversified if you have five stocks in your portfolio, which is ridic- ridiculous, by the way. But let's say 25 is the, is the number that a lot of people point out, right? Yeah. Somewhere around there. So if something happens to one of those 25 stocks or two or three or four or five, well, you're going to have a much different return than if something happened to five stocks in the S&P 500, right? It's just a different sample size. Exactly. So listen, that sampling error, and again, can play very significantly into investment research. Well, and research is important. Have you ever been part of a focus group, Craig? I have. And how was that for you? It's an interesting experience. Yeah. I've actually run focus groups as well in a previous life. Tell us about that. Well, focus groups are used in many cases as a bit of a a tool to hone marketing ideas. Mm -hmm. And so you might use it to test out ideas, you know, and run it by a few people and see see what the reaction is. Right. Exactly. And these are not uncommon things, right? There's companies that are built around providing focus groups for other companies, right? And they're basically market research firms, as you said, that ask a series of questions or give a product to try to a small group of people of usually less than 10 or so, right? And they want to get some reaction from them. And, you know, there's pros and cons to these small groups. I would say the number one con is sample size, right? So if you have a focus group of I don't know, eight people versus a focus group of eight million people, that's a, you're going to get much different results, exactly. right? Yeah. So the advantage to running these focus groups, why companies do them, why researchers do them, is that you can easily measure customer reaction because it's a small group, right? You can get real-time reaction on products or services or whatever. And the idea is that the company that's hired the company to do the focus group wants to get that reaction. They want to know if they're doing a good job, right? right? Disadvantages is that obviously it's not in-depth research, right? I mean, depending who you have in your focus group, you could have very different results, 
right? So if taking it back to investing again, if you had a focus group of 10 people, right? And I don't know, three of them were stock pickers and four of them bought index-based products. So it's that seven. And three of them were, I don't know, something different. What would they be? Let's give an example. What would they be? So three stock pickers, four broad market investors, three maybe commodity-based investors or futures and options, something like that, right? Well, if the question is something around like, are markets efficient? Wow, you're going to get some very different answers, right? So really, is there any advantage to gathering that research from those 10 people? No, and and actually, you sometimes see you get a little snippet of what a focus group is like when you see on some of the news channels, they'll have a panel, a panel of experts, and they'll ask for inflation seems to be running. What do, what do you think? You know, things like that and getting a variety of opinions. And that's, you know, and then all you're doing is getting a small, small number of opinions. And there, there's other areas where, you know, investment firms might use focus groups and that might be in, in trying to figure out how to market their products. So if you're a a mutual fund company, let's say, or an ETF company, and you want to advertise the products to the broad public, investing public, you might use focus groups to try to figure out, okay, well, what, what kind of words can I use in my advertising to make you more likely to, to want to buy this product? And so, you know, you see they use, you know, focus groups can be used in a lot of different ways that way, both for trying to come to a consensus, which, you know, again, is, is very difficult because of a small sample, and to try to figure out, well, how do we market this to people? Yeah. Well, let's talk about a couple of more of the advantages and disadvantages of focus groups. So advantage would be time-saving opportunities. So this condensed nature of a focus group makes it possible for your business to solicit, you know, some quantity of opinions and feedbacks really easily, right? I mean, it's it can happen in less than an hour. You've, you've answered all the questions that you wanted, right? Some disadvantages, again, would be expense. Like, these things aren't free, right? I mean, there's an expense to running focus groups, although not a great expense, you know. I mean, what do you got to do, really? Rent a room and rent a moderator, right? right? I mean, it's pretty straightforward. But the other disadvantage is that moderator probably has their own biases, right? So, So if the focus group is on active versus passive trading strategies, and the moderator is either, I don't know, an active or passive trader, they might sway the room, right? That's right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so focus groups, and again, we think of focus groups in many ways as a tool to assist in marketing, but also as a tool to gather information from a, a sampling of, a, of the population. And again, the problem with, with them being is it's a very small sample. Yeah, so let's agree on that, that your data in whatever research you're doing, whether it's stock picking or anything, you need to have a larger sample size, right, than perhaps a focus group if you're talking about really important things like investing, right? But how can people deal with, like, where do you get a larger sample size from? So here's where it gets interesting as, as the offset to the small sample size in focus groups is, is something called the wisdom of crowds or crowd psychology. And, and the wisdom of crowds is just an idea that large groups of people are collectively smarter than individual experts when it comes to problem-solving, decision-making, innovating, and predicting. And the idea is that the viewpoint of an individual can inherently be biased, whereas taking the average knowledge of a crowd can result in eliminating the bias or noise to produce a clearer and maybe a more coherent result. 
And so the theory is often applied in to financial markets to show why markets in some instances operate efficiently and at certain other times inefficiently. And in order for markets to function efficiently, the market participants in the crowd need to be diverse and have an incentive for markets to to function efficiently. So this whole wisdom of crowds thing, the concept was popularized about yeah, almost 20 years ago by James Sirowiecki. How do you pronounce that? Sirowiecki. <laughs> okay. In his book titled The Wisdom of Crowds. Big surprise. And basically that just examines what we talked about, how large groups have made superior decisions in pop culture, psychology, biology, behavioral economics, and other fields. And listen, crowds aren't always wise and and some, you know, sometimes it can be the opposite. So, for instance, there was a lot of frenzied investors who participated in the stock market bubble, like the one that occurred in the late 1990s with dot-com companies. And so you can go through periods where crowds can be kind of crazy. I think you can go through periods where crowds can be just mean, too. Real short story, Greg. I was at a Calgary Stampeders football game years ago. I think I told you this before. And at halftime, they would blindfold a participant and the crowd would cheer them in the direction of a WestJet something, like a pylon. And if they got it, they got a, a gift certificate to fly anywhere the WestJet flies, right. right? Well, this one game, this one particular person was blindfolded and was running around this, you know, the field and started running towards the goalpost. The crowd cheered him into the goalpost. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh my god but that can be done in investing too right like like you get a lot of naysayers out there that gather some strength yep. and all of a sudden the crowd is going the wrong way right but maybe that's going back to sample size like it's too short of a sample size it could be right yep. so to your point in the longer run having a larger crowd is probably going to provide you with better answers better results over longer periods of time yeah yeah, exactly. You know, and, and so just looking back to that whole dot-com or tech bubble in the uh, early 2000s, I mean, the group or crowd in that particular case, they invested based on speculation that internet startups would become profitable at some point in the future. And I'd argue that it was even, they invested based on even something more fundamental than that, is that was greed. The market was going up very rapidly, and anything that had .com in its name would double or triple or quadruple almost instantaneously. Well, we should have done cmgroup.com. I guess so. Yeah. You know, in a lot of those companies, the prices did soar, despite the fact they had yet to generate any revenue. And then later on, of course, a good portion of those companies went under because, because they did not have strong fundamentals underlying them. There was no justification for the stock prices. And as panic ensued, there was massive sell-offs and, you know, things, things sold out. So what's a wise crowd? So the characteristics of a wise crowd, according to Sirowiecki, there are some several key ones. One, the crowd should be able to have a diversity of opinions. Well, that's important because if they all have the same opinion, then you're not getting any benefit from the crowd. Secondly, one person's opinion should remain independent of those around them and shouldn't be influenced by anybody else. The third characteristic, anyone taking part in the crowd should be able to make their own opinion based on their individual knowledge. And lastly, the crowd should be able to aggregate individual opinions into one collective decision. Okay. So there's also a study done in 2018, which updated the wisdom of crowds theory by suggesting that crowds within an existing group are wiser than the group itself. Wait, these are, these are sub-crowds within crowds. Exactly. Yeah. 
And the research that, that did this basically called it an improvement over the existing wisdom of crowds theory. And what they did is they recorded responses to their questions privately from individuals and collectively by having small groups that were subdivisions of larger ones, and they had them discuss the same questions before providing an answer. And the researchers found that the responses from the small groups in which the question was discussed before an answer was agreed upon were more accurate than individual responses. So anyway, there's so a lot of information on wisdom of crowds, you know, but the, the key thing that, that we're focused on here is the wisdom of crowds in financial markets. Well, partly because this is an investing podcast, Greg. Exactly. Not a psychology podcast. Well, good point. <laughs> Although psychology does play a role in investing, as oh, we've talked about. Huge. Yeah. yeah. So the wisdom of crowds can help explain what makes markets, which are a type of crowd, efficient at times and inefficient at others, as we talked about earlier. And if market participants aren't diverse or if they lack incentives, the market will be inefficient and an item's price could be out of step with its value. So there's an article by Barry Ritholtz, who we've talked about on this podcast before, as a wealth manager and head of Ritholtz Wealth Management. He argued that certain markets, and let's call them prediction markets, mm -hmm. and prediction markets are like futures market, where futures, you buy futures or options, you know, on the basis of an expectation of a, of a future price of a commodity, let's say, or something like that. Yeah, this is like pork bellies. Exactly. Orange juice futures, things like that. Yeah. And he argued that those types of markets, unlike markets for goods and services, lack the wisdom of crowds because they don't have a large or diverse pool of participants. And you could see that where, you know, you've got a, a very small, you know, a, a small subset of the overall market participants would be participating in those. And he points out that prediction markets failed spectacularly in trying to guess the outcomes of events such as Greek referendum, the Michael Jackson trial, and even the 2004 Iowa primary. And because the individuals trying to predict the outcomes of those events were simply guessing based on public polling data and didn't have any special individual or collective knowledge. So there's a lot of merit to the idea that the many are smarter than the few, but it's not always true, particularly when members of the crowd are aware of and influenced by one another's ideas. And so you get what they call consensus thinking among a group of people with poor judgment and that can, unsurprisingly, lead to some poor group decision-making. And that may have been one of the causes of the 2008 financial crisis. You know, people believing that housing prices only go up, they never come down. How about storming the Capitol in January of 20 yeah, 2021? For sure. You know, like, so you've got a group thinking led by poor decision-making. Yeah. Right? Right on. And another example that we've talked about a lot over the last year has been things like the meme stock trading yeah. of GameStop. You know, so there was a lot of people that were not educated on investing and they just piled on because it seemed like a good idea to A, stick it to the man and make a ton of money. And while some people did, I would argue that the majority of the people that got in late lost a lot. Well, even worse, because the people that got in at any time, if they were part of that, that was a social movement more than anything, right? And they talked about having diamond hands. And to have diamond hands, you had to buy those stocks and hold them forever. You were not going to sell them. Well, that's not investing, right? I mean, when we're investing for people, you know, we want to have an exit strategy. Yep. Right? Yep. And that's where I think the, the concept of the crowd has to be diverse and have a diversity of opinions 
you know, in order to successfully implement the the wisdom of crowds. And when we talk about some of these other situations, whether it's meme stock trading or whatever, those people don't have a diversity of opinions. They're all of the same mind and therefore make the same decision. It's funny you bring up the meme stocks. I was thinking about this last night. Remember me. <laughs> Remember the meme stock trades, Craig? I do. It's pretty, pretty bad. bad exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So let's just talk about the maybe advantages and disadvantages of this whole wisdom of crowds concept. So the wisdom of crowds allows for diversity and a broad range of thinking, which provides more color and experience in problem solving than that of any individual, which might be biased. And it also allows for integration of information, whereby the vast knowledge of separate individuals creates a larger knowledge pool. Right. One of the main criticisms of wisdom of crowd is that humans in general tend to conform, leading to some groupthink, which defeats the purpose of the diversity that you need in wisdom of crowds. And in addition, if many individuals are aiming to reach a decision and consensus, it can lead to disagreements and infighting. So again, the pros, diversity, information integration, and a large knowledge pool. The cons, conformity or disagreements. And so here's a couple of examples of how the concept works. And some of us, or anybody who's been to a Dimensional Funds Advisor presentation has taken part in this one. By averaging together the individual guesses of a large group about the weight of an object, the answer may be more accurate than the guesses even of experts most familiar with that object. And they've done those experiments where people would try to guess the weight of a, of a bull or something. And the crowd's guesses were usually better than, you know, than an expert. Yeah. Or the, the other one that they do is they put a bunch of jelly beans in, in a jar and, yeah. you know, have everybody vote on how many jelly beans are in the jar. That's right. And you get a wide dispersion of outcomes, right, from those guesses. But the average guess is actually pretty close to the number of jelly beans in the jar. So that we talk about how the collective judgment of that group can compensate for the bias of a small group. So in trying to guess the outcome of a World Series game, fans may be irrationally biased towards their preferred team. But if you look at a large group that includes plenty of non-fans as well as fans and individuals who dislike both World Series teams, and they've proven they may actually be able to more accurately predict the winner. Okay, and you can see, obviously, in that scenario, how biases would create large distortions. Well, I'm going to share with you my my World Series bias, Greg. The Los Angeles Dodgers are going to win the World Series every year. All right. You want, are we going to put some money on that? You're going to make that one interesting? Well, no, because that'd be crazy to put money on that every year. It's kind of like I had this brother-in-law. I don't have him anymore because he's of divorce. But I remember he was an Edmonton Oilers fan and he would want to bet on the games with me, you know, if they're playing the Flames or whatever, right? And I said to him, you know what? I will bet against the Oilers every game this year. And he said, are you crazy? You're going to take a bet against them every game this year. I said, yeah, because on average, I know they're going to probably win or lose somewhere around 50% of their games, yep. right? Yeah. So that's kind of what happened. Exactly. Right? So, <laughs> so, Greg, what have we learned today? We've talked about how sample size greatly impacts outcomes. And in order to have a more predictable outcome, we need to focus on larger samples, right? A population versus a smaller subset. And we've also learned that focus groups, which have really good intentions, probably don't add a lot of value to research, right? So think of it this way. You as an individual investor, 
already have your own biases. If you focus on your single results, you have a very small sample size and your outcomes may vary greatly from the larger population results, which are the market results, right? And if you do well, then you might be inclined to believe that you have some special skill set. But on average, as I said earlier, we are all average. So even a gambler that does well once will revert back to the mean or worse, right? So instead, if you pool your results with, let's say, 10 friends, you create a larger sample in your mind called a focus group. But really, a focus group of 10 is dwarfed by the true number of market participants, like there are thousands and thousands of people trading stocks every day, right? You know, so they're trading, you know, with you or against you. And lastly, larger groups tend to make better decisions than smaller groups. So that's what you're sort of finishing with there. And and that this is the market results tend to be better than the individual trader over long periods of time. So that's probably why when you see fund manager results, on average, they are the market returns less their fees. Exactly. Right? Because on average, they kind of get the market. That's right. Right. Yeah. So Greg, we started the episode with a little reference to Dr. Johnny Fever and Venus Flytrap. I had a little uh, little song to take us out here. I don't know if it's going to work, but just a little throwback to the, was it the 70s? WKRP? I would think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Les Nessman and what were the, what were the names? Herb Tarlick. Herb Tarlick, yeah. <laughs> he was my favorite. <laughs> that was a good, good show. All right. Anyways, enough of that. But I guess yeah. that's it for today. That's it for today. And we'll look forward to next time. Sounds good. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2022.